Well, thank you for bearing with us, and thanks for being a part of that with us. Um, We're going to jump into the adult portion of the teaching today. Um, So far, what we've seen in the book of Matthew as we've gone through it that might be helpful for us to set up the passage for us this morning is that in chapter 4, we see how the disciples are called to follow Jesus. And then we went through, during the summer, the Sermon on the Mount, which is chapters 5 through 7, which talks all about how to follow Jesus. uh, Jesus is teaching us how to follow him. And then this morning, we get a glimpse of how that following is actually playing out. So we see the following in action. And and a little spoiler alert, it's not very pretty. It's not very pretty. It's filled with selfishness. It's filled with excuses. It's filled with panic. But this alone, I think, shows us that following God isn't always very glamorous. It isn't clean and simple. But instead, following Jesus, this journey of faith is complicated. It's, it's peppered with doubt. It's messy oftentimes. But what we see in these verses this morning is that the faithfulness and the persistence of Jesus, who's, he's, who's always there to, to lead us and also always there to help us. Before we jump into verse 18, let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you that you give us your word, and we thank you that you give us your peace. Help us this morning to see how present you are in the storms of our lives, God, and help us to see how the storms that you allow us to experience can produce in us faith that leads to courage. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 18, if you don't have your Bibles open, I encourage you to do so. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles under your seats. If you don't own a Bible, we have a pile of Bibles in the back. Please take one today as a gift from us to you. Starting in verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, here's the scene. Jesus has just finished healing a lot of people. He's cured diseases. He's cleansed lepers. He's restored people who were completely paralyzed with just a simple word of his mouth. And you might wonder, how do people respond to this? And we already saw that there were those who were being healed. They went and brought others to Jesus in order to receive healing. So that's one way that people had reacted. But what we see here is another way. Someone is coming up to Jesus and they're saying, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, this is interesting because we've only seen Jesus inviting people to follow him. So Peter, Andrew, James, and John, he says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That's Matthew 4.19. So there is a sharp contrast here where there's an individual who is initiating with Jesus. And at first glance, this would seem like a great moment. So we've got this really excited person. He's a scribe, no less. So that would mean that he's an expert in the Jewish law. He's, he's a Bible teacher of Israel. And, and he's coming up to Jesus and saying, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. So surely that is the level of hype and enthusiasm and zeal that Jesus would want to see, right? Jesus doesn't receive this man's declaration like you might imagine. He says to him in verse 20, foxes have holes. 
The birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, if you want to follow me, you need to understand that this is not going to be easy. Foxes have a warm hole to retreat into. Birds have their cozy nests to call home, but I do not have the same luxury. So little critters might have safety and security, but my life is not one of comfort here on earth. So if you want to follow me wherever I'm going to go, this is what you need to know. See, if, if Jesus is a dishonest salesman, then he's going to hide some of this in the tiny fine print. But that's not what he does. He puts it on blast. He warns this excited scribe. What, he, what he's doing, he's pumping the brakes for this scribe. And partly, I think this is to ensure that this person isn't merely making an emotional decision. He's not overcommitting based on how he feels. I'm sure you can relate to this. This is why they say that you shouldn't go to the grocery store when you're hungry, okay? Right? You don't want the fact that you missed lunch to make it so that you spend your entire month's grocery budget on your weekly trip to the grocery store. So it's wise to have a little bit of food in your belly so you can make clear-minded decisions about what to buy. Jesus wants people to be clear-minded when they consider following him. Jesus never tricks anyone into following him. He never says, ah, gotcha, now you're attached to me forever. He does the opposite. He never does a bait and switch. He'll pump the brakes to warn us if we might be making a rash decision of faith. And he wants this man to be careful in his consideration of the cost of following him. He wants him to be thoughtful about what it actually means to make a statement like, I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus. I think one of the ways that this impacts us is it should impact the way that we share the gospel with others. How we evangelize our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers. So we're not saying, hey, just come to church, follow Jesus, and your life's going to be great. That is not the, 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 the gospel appeal. Just for us to gloss over the challenges of what it means to follow Jesus. We want to be able to make sure that people understand the cost of following Jesus. Now, it's not going to be easy. That's something that needs to be communicated. It's not going to be comfortable. That's also something that needs to be communicated. The invitation that Jesus uses is not come and it will be smooth sailing. On the contrary, later on in Matthew 16, verse 24, he says, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So that's not easy. How is that for a sales pitch? We do, as Christians, need to be like Jesus, but also like Paul, who said to the Ephesians in Acts 20, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, not timid as we share parts of the gospel that might be uncomfortable. Now, there's more that we can pull out of this short interaction. And first, I, I want you to notice how the scribe addresses Jesus in verse 19 right there. It's significant that he addresses him as a teacher, as a teacher. At first glance, that might not be a big deal. That seems like a respectful way to address Jesus, but there's a problem with this. There's a problem with this. Well, one of those problems is that after everything that you just saw, 
If, if you saw Jesus healing miraculously, if you just saw him doing supernatural exorcism, if you just saw Jesus have the authoritative command over all flesh that's demonstrated uh, to all the people who came to Jesus with all of their afflictions, and he healed all of them, including a common cold to necrotic skin infections and diseases to complete paralysis. If you saw Jesus heal every one of those afflictions and then heard him preach his Sermon on the Mount, and you, at the end of all of that, call him teacher and not Lord, you've missed something. You've missed something. Calling Jesus teacher is like being in a courtroom and calling the judge homie. The title does not match up with the authority. It's not appropriate. And so this is revealing. It's not a coincidence that in the Gospel of Matthew, the only people who call Jesus teacher are non-disciples. They're non-disciples. You see this in chapter 12, verse 38. You see this in 19, verse 16. You see this 22, in 22, verse 16. This scribe does not fully understand who Jesus is. He doesn't understand the gospel, and therefore he has no idea what he's saying when he says, I will follow you wherever you go. One thing to take away from this is that Jesus is not impressed with lofty commitments and promises that are made to him. He's not. The scribe might think that he's flattering Jesus, but Jesus doesn't receive this promise of faithfulness. I think those of us who have followed Jesus, we've learned something about faith. It's that faithfulness is not something that we can promise, even if we wanted to. The fact that we woke up this morning and we are following Christ this morning is a miraculous grace from God. And if we wake up tomorrow and for some reason we are following and loving Jesus and we have faith in Jesus, it again will be a miraculous grace in our lives. It won't be because of a result of any effort on our part or any work on our part or any promise that we've made the night before, Ephesians 2.9, because it's not about anything that we can do because we are not able to boast about it. This isn't just because the scribe didn't know what he was talking about. This is a truth for all of us as believers. When Jesus tells his disciples that they're all going to fall away in Matthew 26, do you remember Peter's response to that? Do you remember what he said? This is in chapter 26, verse 33. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Verse 34, and Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Verse 35, Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. There's some strong promises made there. Later on in the same chapter in 26, when Jesus needs the support and love of all of those around him, those who just swore allegiance to him no matter what, Peter wasn't there. He, was, he wasn't dying with Jesus like he promised he said he, w uh, he promised he would. He was a coward. He was denying that he even was associated with Jesus. Mercy us, we cannot promise obedience. We cannot impress Jesus with declarations of future faith. And we don't have to. We don't have to. That's the gospel. Our salvation is not in our ability to follow. It's not in our ability to read our Bibles every day. It's not in our ability to give our time or to share the gospel with one person each week or whatever lofty goal or promise you want to make. 
to God like this man does. But salvation is by grace through faith, which is a gift from God, Ephesians 2.8. Now, it's not clear what happens to this man. We don't really see. He's not named, so we, don't, we can't follow that story. There is kind of a shred of hope, though, as you begin verse 21, because what we read in verse 21 is this. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So right there, the, another of the disciples, I think that this, this can imply that the scribe that we just heard would be a disciple despite their overly zealous initial promise. It's a little bit of speculation. We're not sure. But here, there is another disciple who says to Jesus, Lord, so that's a great place to start, right? This is a different place than where the scribe was at. This person is rightly identifying Jesus, not just as a teacher, but as Lord. He says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, there's no cultural context here that would be helpful for us to get maybe a deeper understanding of what's happening. This is simply a man whose father has died and he's asking Jesus if he can take care of that first before leaving to follow Jesus. This is about as reasonable as a request as a person can make. But look at Jesus' response, verse 22. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. What Jesus is communicating here is that there is nothing more important than following him. There is no excuse that we can make when Jesus is calling us to follow him where he'd say, oh, you're right, that actually is more important. Why don't you go button that up and figure that out and then you can come with me on this mission to preach the gospel and bring the message of hope and life to those who are hopeless and dead, right? Why don't you go take care of that first? There's nothing This disciple's excuse is perhaps the strongest excuse that one could possibly make during this time. So filial piety or the emphasis of caring for and respecting one's parents, it was a weighty responsibility in Middle Eastern culture. There was no greater priority than honoring your family and at the heart of which were your parents. And so part of that honor, part of that respect was demonstrated in laying the body of your parents to rest in a burial ceremony when they died. But it is to that that Jesus says in verse 22, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. It's a hard word, but nothing is more important than following Jesus. We all struggle with this. We might know this in our heads, but then we will make excuses. We make a lot of excuses when Jesus asks us to do things, don't we? We make excuses to procrastinate or simply just not to do the spiritual disciplines that God calls us to do. When he calls us to read our Bibles, to gather together as a church, to give generously of our resources in worship of God, to pray for one another, to share the gospel, to make disciples. We say things like, hey, let me just first, and then you fill in the blank. I don't know what that is for you. Maybe let me first check my phone and scroll mindlessly before I have my quiet time. Let me first do my workout and take care of my body or have some me time before I read my Bible. Let me first get a job and make some real money or get in a better spot of financial security before I start giving. Good things 
that we have legitimate responsibility for might be used as excuses. And culturally, they might feel and sound like perfectly legitimate excuses, like caring for our children, or excelling in school, or advancing in our careers, or burying our parents. But nothing should delay or tarry God's call to follow him in our lives. Jesus is not satisfied with being second in our hearts or in our lives. What Jesus is trying to communicate here is that there's nothing that we should prioritize over Jesus. Let me put that a little bit more positively. There's nothing we should put before Jesus because Jesus is worthy of that prime spot. Like there's nothing that brings us more joy than Jesus. There's nothing in our lives that is going to satisfy us more than Jesus. There's nothing in our lives that's going to bring us more comfort or peace than Jesus. There's nothing that's going to give us greater rest than Jesus. We prioritize things over Jesus when we think that there are things that will take that prime spot away from Jesus. But everything else falls short. There's nothing that is literally more critical to our day, more essential to our existence than Jesus. And if we want to follow Jesus, then we must learn, as this disciple does right here, that Jesus' command is for our complete allegiance to him, total obedience. He doesn't ask for part of us, but all of who we are each and every single day. I think people will read this passage and they might say, man, Jesus is cold-hearted. He's cruel. Here are two things I would keep in mind. First, don't forget the entire first part of this passage where Jesus is compassionately healing every single sickness and every single disease from every single person that is brought to him day and night. So that context is really important when we're trying to judge the heart of Jesus. Second, if Jesus truly is the way, the truth, and the life, not making himself a priority would be the cruel and cold-hearted thing to do. Let me tell you what I mean. So I don't know if you know this, but uh, Alden is deathly allergic to peanuts, right? If he has even a bite of a peanut, he will die. Now, if I watched him eat a peanut right here, and I had an EpiPen in my hand, and he says to me, Tommy, let me first go to the bathroom, right? Because he'd start like going to anaphylaxis. Let me just first go to the bathroom. If I said to him, yeah, go ahead, go to the bathroom, but then just make sure you hurry right on back so I can give you that EpiPen and jab it into his neck because he's going to die if he doesn't get the epinephrine. I know you don't put it in your neck. You put it in the thigh, (laughs) all right? The healthcare professionals are like, does he know? Like, he will kill him if he puts it into his neck. Yeah, you put it in the, the leg. I get it, but... Jesus isn't cold-hearted or cruel by telling this disciple to prioritize following him. He loves him and he loves us enough to speak truth, even when that truth might be hard to receive. And so I pray that we can hear and receive this truth this morning. And even more than this, I pray that we can do the same for those in our lives that we love to speak gospel truth for someone's best interest, even when it might be uncomfortable for them to receive. This is not the work of just the pastor on a Sunday morning. This is the work of the church as you go out into the world. 
So quick recap here as we move on to the last snapshot of the disciples following Jesus. We have one person who's eager and excited to follow Jesus who's seemingly rejected. We have another person who's making excuses and they're actually told to follow and exhorted to follow. It's a little bit backwards from what we'd expect. I think it's fair to say that these people we're looking at are kind of on the fringe of Jesus's ministry, but what about those who are actually on the inside? What about those whom Jesus recruited to be on this ministry dream team, Peter, Andrew, James, and John? Let's see how following Jesus is going for them. Verse 23, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? You may have heard this passage before. It's a favorite moment in Jesus' ministry for many Christians uh, my girls in particular love this story. And what's happening is Jesus and his, his disciples get into a boat and they're navigating around Na uh, Galilee. And verse 24 says that there was a great storm on the sea. I think this translation is uh, actually a little bit weak. The, the word that Matthew uses here is seismos in the Greek, which can be translated as storm, but it's more literally an earthquake or like a violent shaking of the earth. The same word is used by Matthew to describe two other great earthquakes in the gospel, which happened, one at Jesus' death and the second one at Jesus' resurrection. That's in Matthew 27 and Matthew 28. This is a unique phenomenon. I think this is important to know because what's happening at sea is not a regular squall or storm. Remember, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they're all career fishermen. They grew up on the waters. They've certainly seen some wind and waves. But what they experienced this day is exceptional. The earth is violently shaking. It's generating waves that are swamping or overwhelming the boat that they're in. And we know this great quake, this great storm isn't normal by the reaction from these seasoned, seaworthy fishermen. They're terrified. They're terrified. They think that they are about to die. Now contrast that to what Jesus is doing. Verse 24, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so the boat was being swamped by waves, but he was asleep. Jesus, in the midst of what is the most violent weather condition that Galilee had ever seen, with water overwhelming his boat and grown fishermen running around freaking out, Jesus is cozied up taking an afternoon cat nap. Not a care in the world. There aren't many places in the Bible that show the humanity and the divinity of Jesus quite like this. The purpose of this is not to demonstrate that Jesus is a really heavy sleeper. That's not what this is getting at. It is to show us that Jesus was fully man, which meant that he got tired, he needed to recharge, he took naps, but that he was also fully God, not only is Jesus' godly authority in his touch or his word, that's what we saw in these last couple chapters of Matthew as we looked at uh, Jesus' ability to heal, but Jesus' godly authority is actually in his being as he lays unconscious 
on the boat. Mercy House, there is nothing in all of creation that can startle or concern or cause any remote form of anxiety in our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the reality of Jesus' godly authority. And some of us, I think, need to hear this and remember this truth this morning. Most of us, I think, can relate to the disciples here. We might spend a lot of time running around panicking just like them, thinking that we're going to perish, we're going to die in the various circumstances of our lives. And I don't mean to diminish what we're going through because for them, that storm that the disciples are experiencing is likely the most violent and most vicious storm and their fear for their lives is not unreasonable if their circumstances were the only factor to consider. But they are not. Look at what happens, verse 25. And they went and woke him saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? O oh, you of little faith. Notice how the fear of the disciples is directly connected to the faith of the disciples. Why are you afraid, O oh, you of little faith? This is a tough moment. Jesus rebukes them in their fear and their lack of faith. And what we see translated there as little faith, it's actually a one-word noun in the Greek, so he's calling them little faiths. It's like a name, kind of like a coward. I sometimes wake up from naps in a really foul mood. This is not what's happening here. Jesus is not just grumpy. He's trying to show them something. The implication is that if their faith in him was greater, they would not be afraid. And that is true. If they had more faith in who Jesus was, if they had faith that he was more than just a teacher but a Lord, if, if they had faith that his authority wasn't limited to just the medical field but to all of creation, they would have had the peace of Jesus that surpasses all understanding, Philippians 4, 7. They wouldn't panic. They wouldn't think that they are about to die. Now, I don't know if they would take a nap next to Jesus, but they would maybe actually have some fun. <laughs> like that experience of terror might actually be one of a wild boat ride if they understood how safe they actually were. I grew up, uh, and, and I grew up singing this, this nursery rhyme. It's called Jesus in Your Boat. And it goes like this, with Jesus in your boat, you can smile in the storm, smile in the storm, smile in the storm. With Jesus in your boat, you can smile in the storm when you're sailing home. Anyone? Can any, has anyone ever heard that? A couple people. Mercy House. <laughs> you can smile when Jesus is in your boat. Having courage as a Christian is not about overcoming what makes you afraid? It is running to Jesus who has overcome everything that you can possibly be afraid of. That's what courage is for the Christian. What the disciples are doing wrong here is they are not resting in God's sovereign authority over them and over creation. In their minds and in their hearts, their circumstance is greater and more severe than God. Whatever you are going through right now, you need to know that God loves you and he is in control. That's what the disciples did not believe and did not know. That Jesus loved them. He wouldn't let anything happen to them in that boat. And he actually had the power to ensure their safety. 
So no matter how out of control you feel, no matter how small or weak you feel, no matter how overwhelmed, how big those waves look like, nothing is greater than God. Our children are learning to believe this. We also are learning to believe this. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at these passages on healing that have led up to this. And so many of of you have been so honest and transparent and sharing things that we can be praying for. And some of the things that you're asking for are hard. They are heavy. They're heartbreaking. The circumstances that you're in are, are severe. And some of you might prefer to be in a storm at sea instead of going through what you're going through right now. But God loves you. He is for you, and he is in control. What the disciples needed to do was to take their eyes off of the waves and turn their eyes to Jesus. Maybe that's what you need to do this morning. The disciples weren't resting in God's sovereign authority, but what they did do that was right was that they did come running to Jesus for help when they were afraid. And it's better to be a little faith than a no faith. If you're a little faith this morning, you are in good company. Look at verse 25. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds of the sea, and there was a great calm. Yes, there is a rebuke, but Jesus doesn't roll over and say, hey, come wake me up when there's some actual real danger happening here, okay? No, he got up. And he rebuked the winds and the sea. In Mark 4, 39, we read that Jesus shouted at the storm. He said, peace, be still. And out of the great storm came a great calm. This is a very intentional word choice by Matthew. It's meant to communicate that as shocking and dramatic as that great storm was, the great calm that came after that was equally shocking and dramatic there was a stillness that was immediate. And like the great waves and the winds that were overwhelming their boat, there was a great serenity and peace that overwhelmed their hearts. And just like that, Jesus turns their fear and terror in verse 25 into worship and awe in 27. Verse 27, and the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? That's Jesus Mercy House. He's the sort of man that has complete sovereign authority over all his creation. He's the sort of man that you can run to when you're afraid. He's the sort of man who will challenge you in your faith, but who will never turn you away. He's the sort of man who sometimes allows us to experience storms in order to teach us to have greater faith and greater peace in him. He's the sort of man who will never abandon ship and who is always with us in every high and stormy gale. God promised us this sort of man. He's been talking about what sort of man this promised king would be. A few places, Psalm 29, verse 3 through 4, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Psalm 65, verse 6. The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult 
of the peoples. And then Psalm 107, verse 23, as if it's written as a prophetic glimpse into this passage that we're reading this morning. Verse 23, some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Jesus was sent to earth to calm storms. But the greatest storm that he would calm was not the storm in the Sea of Galilee, but on the cross of Calvary. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. We take communion, and when we do that, we remember the storm of sin that we all find ourselves in, sin that we've committed, sin that others have committed against us, Sin that just has broken the world all around us as we know it. And Jesus died so that we would not be overwhelmed by this storm of sin. So that when we run to Jesus, when we tell him we're perishing, we are dying, we can actually have life and have peace. Jesus says in John 16 verse 33, I have said these things things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. As you take communion this morning, remember that whatever storm you are in, Jesus is with you. And so turn to him, the one who has overcome every single storm. And remember, with Jesus in your boat, you can smile in the storm. Smile in the storm, smile in the storm. With Jesus in the boat, you can smile in the storm when we're all sailing home. Let's pray. Jesus, you are God. And Father, you are the sovereign creator and ruler and reigner of everything that we can see and everything that we can't, God. There is no spot of creation that is outside of your sovereign control. And there's no situation that we find ourselves in that you don't know about. Lord, it can frustrate us and challenge us when we endure and experience challenges that we don't know what their purpose is, Lord. And so some of those are just a product of sin and brokenness in our world. But Lord, we thank you that the storms that you allow us to endure are ones that you are in with us, God. And help us not to lose sight of the purpose and the meaning, or at least some of the fruit that can come from the storms that you allow us in, which is that we can grow in our faith and our courage in you, Lord. Father, help us to run to you in moments of distress and fear and anxiety, knowing that you have overcome all of it, God. I pray now that as we receive communion and take communion together, Lord, that we would see ourselves 
um, together in this boat, God. It's, it's not lost on us that the disciples were together in the boat with you, Lord. And so there is a communal aspect as we navigate our storms. Help us to be good brothers and sisters, to sit with one another through these storms, Lord, and to remind one another of the truth of the gospel, Lord, even when that might be hard to receive. God, we love you. Thank you for your patience with us, Lord. Thank you that you never leave us or abandon us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.